We thought it was probably a robbery, but then this level of violence just wasn't something that you would ordinarily expect to see. Being at the scene and actually seeing how it lays out, it just tells you a million times more than looking at pictures or video. What was adduced in the autopsy, obviously that's a source of a great deal of evidence and sometimes the difference between convicting someone and not. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, this is so exciting. Not only are we back in the studio together, which I know you... Well, you have a hard time when we're not in the studio together. It breaks my heart. Breaks my heart. (laughs) (laughs) But not only that is a good thing, Jim, but we have with us today one of our favorite guests all the way from Maryland, and she is... Hi, it's Kay Winfrey, and I am speaking to you from Rockville, Maryland. I, too, am a former state and federal prosecutor, but I am now a happily retired grandmother of two. Oh, well, Kay, and you have you're like a triple threat because you weren't just a state prosecutor, which most people think of as, you know, sort of ADA kind of level and a federal prosecutor. You also were an assistant attorney general. Yeah, I was actually the chief deputy attorney general for Maryland for seven and a half years. So that was a very different job in many ways from being a prosecutor. There were prosecutorial aspects, but we did a lot of things beyond that multi-state investigations and settlements and consumer protection and a a whole host of other things that I never even knew existed in the world of law when I was a prosecutor only. So that was a very exciting part of my career. You know, Jim, Kay kind of makes me feel bad about myself. Why do we invite her on? Francie, um, I think, you know, the average citizen should make you feel bad about yourself. (laughs) That's very... Well, I was just going to say, doesn't doesn't Jim do an adequate job of that, Francie? (laughs) I try hard. I really try hard. I think think you do quite well. (laughs) I don't have to try at all. Stop. Okay. Flash (laughs) Francie is over. Let's get started, Kay, because I'm really excited for our listeners to hear something from the case files of Kay Winfrey. So can you start off by telling us where you were in your career when this case came in? So this was the year 2000, and I was in my office in Rockville, Maryland. I was the chief deputy state's attorney for Montgomery County, Maryland, when I got a call on an afternoon in the middle of the week that there had been a homicide in Germantown. 
Hey, Kay, just really quickly for our listeners, because we have people, you know, in every state and lots of listeners from all over the world. And so they might not really recall exactly what a state's attorney is. What's the difference between that and a district attorney, for example? So there really isn't any difference. It's just what the state of Maryland calls its prosecutors. Some jurisdictions call them district attorneys. Other ones call them prosecuting attorneys. It's just the the language of Maryland is state's attorney instead of district attorney. Same thing. So did a detective call you? If so, what was it? Yes. So it was a murder. We kept a list of the prosecutors who would handle upcoming homicides so they would know and they would be available if calls came in. But the calls from the homicide section of the Montgomery County Police Department always came to me first, came to me or the other deputy state's attorney. And this one we knew was going to be high profile and would get a lot of attention because the victim was a beloved Catholic priest, Monsignor Thomas Wells, and his church was the Mother Seton Catholic Church in Germantown. Do you remember what detective called you? I do. It was Mike Brent. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about Detective Mike Brent? Was he a seasoned, older detective or was he a brand new guy just cutting his teeth in homicide? No, Mike had been around a long time and was very experienced and a pleasure to work with and somebody that I had done other cases with. And it was always good to know that he was leading the charge because he was very thorough. Not that the young guys weren't, but he was just somebody that, although I'll tell you when we get to it later, that sometimes even the seasoned ones want to step outside the box a little bit. But yeah, the call came in from my friend. Okay. The other question I have for you, since you know, you've done so much work with homicide detectives, I think that our listeners are really fascinated to kind of get a look inside how that operates. You say that he was experienced and thorough. If you had to characterize sort of the majority of homicide detectives and other detectives that you worked with, do you think TV does them justice? I mean, do you think they're like they're portrayed on TV? Or do you think that they're a sort of a a much more ethical hardworking, kind of a thorough investigator type bunch? Well, I think it depends on what TV show you're talking about. Those that seem to portray police detectives, homicide or otherwise, as corner cutters and folks that are on the take or that are sloppy and that are only out to solve the crime or put a, put a charge on somebody without regard to whether it's the actual perpetrator no, that is not my experience with, with detectives in any of the jurisdictions that I've worked. I have been most fortunate to work with, for the most part, highly skilled, motivated, educated, and committed men and women in the police departments that I have that I have worked with. But there are some shows, obviously, that do portray detectives in the way that the folks that I work with actually operate. Was the reason that you got this call that they wanted you to respond to the crime scene or had the crime scene already been processed and released? Uh, well, that's a that's a very lengthy a- answer, actually. So what they wanted to do was to notify the state's attorney's office that there had been this murder. And at once I got a thumbnail sketch about the victim and what had happened, there had not been an arrest. I went to talk to my boss, the state's attorney, 
And he made the decision that I was not, not next up on the list, but he wanted me to take the lead on the case. So I went up to, I drove up to the scene. The murder had happened in the rectory of the Mother Seton Catholic Church. Can we set the stage for that? What What does that mean? Like, this is a, how big is the church? How, what's the congregation like? What's the demographics of the neighborhood? So Germantown is what we would call geographically a bit up county, meaning that it's farther away from D.C. and Virginia, which are adjacent to Montgomery County, Maryland. So there's a, a pretty diverse population in Germantown. There are different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic groups. It's definitely not as wealthy as Bethesda and Potomac, which are closer in to, to D.C. So the congregation of this church, it was a, a large church. So I, I think that it drew people from all over Germantown and, and likely other parts of the county, too, because Monsignor Wells had been the the head priest, and forgive me if I don't use the proper language because I'm I'm not Catholic and I don't always get the right terms. My my family laughs at me because they're all Catholic. But he had presided over a church, Our Lady of Lords in Bethesda. So he was well beloved and I, I know that people that had gone to uh, and had worked with him and had been ministered by him in Bethesda, had also followed him up to Germantown to benefit from his from his ministry. So he was a very popular priest. And how old was he? He was 56 when he was killed. So he would probably have been a priest for like 30 years or something? Yeah, yeah, I would say about that. And he had come from, he was um, one of a very large Catholic family. And his, I mean, just wonderful brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews. And he was Uncle Tommy and he was their rock. He was just, I mean, obviously these were things that I learned as the investigation went on, but this was a tragedy for the community and his family to lose, to lose Monsignor Wells. So you drive up, you're in Germantown, you go to the rectory inside the church. And what do you do when you get there? Well, I don't get inside the church. I don't get inside the rectory because this was a, a crime scene. The entire, all of the the physical evidence relating to the attack and the murder of Monsignor Wells was inside the rectory. And for those who don't know, the rectory is where the priest lives in the church. Uh, it, it's adjacent to the church. And he, it actually, all of the the attack and the murder happened in Monsignor Wells' bedroom. So it was a very complex crime scene to process. And interestingly, and I, I never did know or understand quite why the powers that be in the homicide section of the police department had decided that the two detectives who were going to be working the homicide, that was Detective Brent and his partner, would not go inside the crime scene until it had been it had been processed. They assigned that task the, to a, another detective. So she was in Paula McDonald was inside the rectory with the crime scene technicians, and it took several days for them to process and release the rooms to the rest of us so we could go in. Several days, I, and that's that's extraordinary. It is. What was the cause of death? 
The cause of death was blunt force trauma and multiple stab wounds. Uh, And there had been quite a struggle inside the bedroom. So there were multiple places within a a fairly small area, actually, for them to process. And of course, one of the things that they would be looking for was obvious that, that Monsignor Wells had been attacked with a knife. But in that kind of man-to-man struggle, it was likely that the perpetrator had been injured. So they wanted to be very careful to isolate any blood spatter that might be related to the criminal. And that was complicated. And there were, within that room, just multiple pieces that had to be processed. And it, it took quite a while. So just another question about that. If they spent three days processing that scene, and the lead detective couldn't go in there, and you couldn't go in there. What was the body still in there? Had they removed the Monsignor? No, the body had been removed before the time that I even got to the scene. He was discovered. Monsignor Wells had been out to dinner the night before with a number of people. He was a very social man, very popular with his with his congregation. And he had been out to dinner, had a few glasses of wine, and had gone back to the rectory. He was found the following morning by the housekeeper of the rectory. She actually found the body. So it was sometime after that I was alerted and went there, and Monsignor Wells' body had been had been taken by that time. Did they ever make a determination as to the time of death? Well, we knew that it was, well, going back to what happens on television, I I love these shows that say the liver temperature is whatever it is, and he died within an hour. Uh, To my knowledge, unless it's really changed since I stopped doing homicides, that's not possible. But it, it would have been sometime between, I believe it was like 1030 when he was dropped off back at the rectory after dinner, 10.30 or 11, and the housekeeper came sometime between 8 and 9, and that was about as close as they as they were able to determine, sometime overnight that he was attacked and killed. Okay. All right, so there you are. You're, you, you can't get into the rectory because they're processing the scene for several days. His body has already been removed, so what's your role there? What do you do? Well... My role there was probably one of the saddest things that one ever has to do as a homicide prosecutor. The family was there. And there was behind the rectory a little gazebo. It was a it was a hot day, as I recall, and they were seated under the the cover of this gazebo. And the woman that I was going to be trying the case with, Deborah Grimes, arrived and we went out. We talked we had talked to the detectives and then we went out around back and sat with the family for a while and talked to them about what they could expect in the process. It was basically hand holding because at that point homicide had no leads and 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 this, this is a huge part of being a homicide prosecutor, knowing that you know things that about how it's going to end that they don't know, which is what has haunted me always as a homicide prosecutor, and that is that under the very best of circumstances, we catch the bad guy or a woman, and they're convicted, and they get an appropriate sentence. And that's under the very best of circumstances, and none of that ever brings any any real comfort or closure to the family. So it was mostly just talking about helping them navigate the process and answer any questions that they might have about what they could expect in the coming weeks.
Y'all, we all know hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, and growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. But then he switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. You can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. And its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates faster. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-S-T-C-A-S-E. Y'all, you know true crime is my passion, but even I need the occasional break. And when I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. I love Best Fiends. It has challenging puzzles, but is a casual game that anyone can play. It's made for adults, and you can spend as much or as little time as you'd like in the game. It's really kind of like true crime. There are challenging puzzles. It engages your brain. There's a story. Best Fiends is a unique and exciting puzzle experience, unlike other puzzle games out there. It treats the game like a service for their players. They update the game monthly with new levels and events so that it never gets old. You don't even need the internet to play, so it's great for traveling. You can play anywhere, a plane, the subway, when you're in the back of an Uber or Lyft, anywhere. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. So I have a question about how the process works when three days go by while they're processing the, the scene. Is the lead detective, I mean, is he trying to come up with leads? Is he already out canvassing? Is he already working the case even before the scene is completely processed? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Doing which, which is what would happen in any case where you didn't have an obvious suspect. So yes, they were canvassing. They were interviewing everybody that at the rectory, his family, uh, anybody who might have any clues about who would have a motive anything of that sort. So all of those things were being done because what was happening inside the the rectory or the bedroom was development and processing of the forensic evidence. And so any of that would not, unless the, the perpetrator had left behind something obviously identifying himself, those are sort of parallel things that happen in any homicide investigation anyway. So that that didn't really change. Well, and so, Kate, does that mean while the scene's still being processed, presumably there's going to be an autopsy that's going to go on? And are you or your colleague, Deborah Grimes, going to go to that autopsy? And did you? I did not go to his. And at this point, I do not recall whether she went. Typically, one or both of us would have gone, but I know that I did not go to his. And I, at this point, I don't recall why or whether she went. But the, obviously, the, the lead detectives would have been there. 
Well, and so after the autopsy, though, you would have been given information on what was adduced in the autopsy. What what did you learn from that? I mean, obviously, that's a source of a great deal of evidence, and sometimes the difference between convicting someone and not. Well, it was a it it was a pretty brutal murder. He had been beaten, and he had been stabbed multiple times, and the the level of violence and 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 what we were being told by Paula McDonald and the and the crime scene technician about what they were seeing inside gave us a lot of insight into it it seemed above and beyond we thought it was probably a robbery but then this level of violence and just wasn't something that you would ordinarily expect to see in a home invasion robbery gone bad so but the autopsy did show that it had been a very brutal attack and a prolonged attack. So obviously there were defensive wounds. And I'm just wondering, there were, the, you said, blunt force and stabbing. So does that mean that there were other instruments used, other weapons used other than the knife? There, there was a stationary bike in the rector in the bedroom that it looked as if there had been a struggle around that and that some of the injuries that, you know, he had been shoved into that. But the, the primary cause of death was the uh, multiple stab wounds. And there was, there, there was not a knife recovered. There was no, that murder weapon was not recovered. Okay. Do you know whether there was any indication that there was a forced entry into the rectory and or the church and or the priest's bedroom? There was forced entry. The rectory in the building where it was, was there were two floors and the rectory, it it was almost like the side that I've described that had the gazebo. There was a ground level entry going out to that. So it's like a a basement, but sort of hard to describe. His bedroom was on the first floor, but just because of the, uh, the way that the the area was landscaped is the wrong word, but it there were two levels and each of them had an entry. And the lev- the entry had been through a window that was broken on that bottom level where the gazebo was. And there were also were offices down there. So that part of the rectory was a bit separate from the bedroom area where Monsignor Wells lived, which was on what I would describe as the top floor. Wow. So... Yeah, so the the slope of the ground was one side of that building. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for, slope. <laughs> you know, the, the the first floor was actually ground level, but then the back side of the building had yes. had two floors that were exposed. Yes, exactly. All right, and then so he chose to break in, break a window on the lowest floor, what you're calling the ground floor. And the priest's bedroom was on the the first floor, but it was one floor above the window that was broken. Exactly. So what's interesting about that is that this was a murder then that happened, an attack that happened upstairs. Yes. And the priest didn't actually come downstairs and, and find somebody, let's say, hearing the window breaking, but he actually was attacked in his own room. Exactly. And we don't we don't know exactly how that encounter began. Okay, so this is a very complicated case, and it sounds. I mean, I can't wait to hear uh, what happened next. So, what I want to know from you is, what are you as the prosecutor doing while the scene is being finished, and then the scene is finished, the autopsy happens, 
the detectives are really starting their case, what, you know, their investigation, what is your actual role as the prosecutor in a homicide investigation? Well, at that point, we would be, if there were legal questions that the police had, we would be advising if, you know, if they wanted to get a search warrant or anything of that sort, that would be just a typical role in a homicide case. Because of course, unless they've got witnesses that are, they're ready to interview, we don't typically get involved in that. So I'm sure during the course of the next few days, but before the, the scene was released, that's what was happening. I, I do know that once the crime scene technicians had completed their forensic work, that I did go to the rectory and went through the entire building, including the rooms where the murder had happened with the lead detectives. And that was probably on the third or fourth day uh, after the murder. Yeah, that's really important. I did that a number of times when I was a prosecutor and certainly when I was an FBI agent. Being at the scene and actually seeing how it lays out, it just tells you a million times more than looking at pictures or video. Well, it really does. And especially seeing this room and it it was, I mean, it was a large bedroom, but it was a bedroom and it had a bath attached to it that was, you know, not huge. It, it A bath with a shower stall and a, a commode and sink. But to think that there was so much going on in that bedroom that it took the forensics three days, almost three days to complete the work was, was pretty startling. And, and, you know, of course, when you go in things, some things have been removed, pieces of carpet, but there were, there was a lot of blood spatter. And as I recall, the, the crime scene technician was there with us and showed us things that he had observed and, and was describing the work that he had done. And it was a, this was a, it was a complex scene because it wasn't as if there had been one part of the room where the priest was stabbed and died. It, there were things that had happened all over that bedroom. And it was, it was very bloody, even though it was days after. It was very disturbing to see. Well, and so, Kay, do you think you would categorize the Monsignor as having you know, engaged in a serious fight for his own life? Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely so, because it it was obvious that he had not been immediately overwhelmed and overtaken and subdued because, it yes, he absolutely had fought for his life. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, as you know, I spent a great part of my career in the behavioral analysis unit at the FBI. And when we saw situations like you described, where there's overwhelming force, overkill, it sounds like it's a very determined defender that he is very goal-directed. In other words, he didn't take an opportunity to knock the priest over and leave. He kept coming back over and over and over again as the Monsignor fought for his life. And that could mean when you have such a, a scene of great overkill and disarray, that could mean that the offender is psychotic. It could also mean that the offender knows the victim and is enraged. So uh, I am very curious to see how this plays out and whether any of that is true. I don't want to know about it right now. But when we come back next time, we'll go much deeper into how this case and investigation played out. So, Kay, thank you so much for joining us. 
I'm like, Jim, I'm on the edge of my seat. I can't wait to hear how it turned out. I'm hoping there was a trial involved and justice for an offender, but we'll find all that out on our next episode of Best Case, Worst Case. Till next time, signing off on Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wondery. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l, dot org.